welcome to Talk of the Hound, a theater podcast by Theater Hound. I'm your host, Wes Braver, and today I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite playwrights, Hallie Pfeiffer. She's also a TV writer and an actress. We'll get into some of that. Her plays include the extended titles, I'm Gonna Pray for You So Hard, Moscow, 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 The Pain of My Belligerence, and this one's a doozy, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Gynecologic Oncology Unit at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center of New York City, Howie Pfeiffer. I've done a lot of podcasts. No, I don't think I have. <laughs> kind of a pod vet. Um, I don't think I have, uh, which now I feel very unsuccessful. So please, no, I, I really on your podcast. Now you're in LA, so you should meet all the comedians doing the just like talking. Yeah, I've, I've gotten asked a lot, but I've just been really busy, so I haven't gotten to do. Oh, wow, well, I'm but... so I'm so honored then. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, that one was that last podcast interview was two years ago, and so the whole you know there, some things have happened in between then. Yeah, I agree. And I'm really that. I'm really curious to you know ask you what you've been up to during this pandemic, creatively, mm. personally, anything. Um, I know you're no longer a New Yorker, so what's the LA life like? Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, that was a big change during the pandemic that I didn't really fully intend to make that the pandemic really guided me towards. I came to LA temporarily, quote unquote, uh, uh, towards the end of the run of Moscow, 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 um, at uh, MCC because I got an offer to write on American Crime Story, um, colon impeachment, which is going to be the story of um, Monica Lewinsky, uh, Bill Clinton, and Linda Tripp, mostly focusing on Monica and Linda. And I was truly a shell of a human at that point because I had done um, that play and this other play, The Pain of My Belligerence, truly back to back with like a week in between and The Pain of My Belligerence, which was at Playwrights Horizons, I was also acting in. It was very personal, you know, so in addition to how exhausting acting in anything eight days a week, eight times a week is like, that was a very emotionally taxing play, not the healthiest decision I've ever made for my brain, body, and soul, but, you know, live and learn. So I was really drained um, after Moscow opened, and then I got this offer to write on this show that I would say is my favorite show. You know, I was so obsessed with the OJ season and actually even more obsessed with the Versace season because I feel that they really explore the seamy underbelly as well as the humanity of um, uh, unsung heroes and villains in ways that are incredibly dramaturgically compelling. So I was like, fuck, can I say, can I say that word? Thank God, I don't know how else I would get through this podcast interview. Um, <laughs> Definitely, having seen having seen Moscow, 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 I would yeah. never, I would never restrain you from expressing yourself truthfully. Thank you. Okay, I just have to say it six times. The only reason I said the full title of that play was because I listened to the interview with Mark Wendland, the set designer of that play, and I noticed that he was he said the full title every time. So I, I'm want to follow in his footsteps. You That's very respectful of him, but I want to make sure that we have time for listeners. Yeah, to you're like, me. you can't say any of the titles of your plays so that we have yeah. time to talk about actually anything else. Um, So this is all to say, I was like, okay, I'll say yes to this job. It's six weeks. It's what's known in, um, you know, the TV world as a mini room, which are getting more and more um, 
common, which is um, it's a bit of like, for lack of a better term, it's sort of an audition process. Like, okay, let's see how this room goes. If it goes well, we'll extend it. Then we'll green light the series, et cetera. This so this, the impeachment, sorry, let me, I'm just curious yeah, about how that works. So the, the impeachment is like, is that like a pilot? What the mini room means? Like, like that you would have worked on a couple episodes and then they would extend you or? Uh, it's, that was sort of a weird situation because from my understanding, there was really no world in which they wouldn't make that show because impeachment yeah. is a pretty um, successful franchise with many Emmys under their belt. But there was um, a new show, a showrunner with no experience as a showrunner, this truly brilliant playwright, uh, Sarah Burgess, um, who I knew through the playwriting world and we had been in another room together previously. And I think they, um, you know, we were all playwrights in the room and I think they just sort of wanted to get a feel of how it, how it, how the, how the dynamic worked. Um, uh, because the good thing about a mini room is like, oh, if someone's a bad apple, you can sort of switch them out for someone else, et cetera. So I, I didn't really understand what the commitment was or I thought it was just six weeks and then I'll leave probably. So I came to LA for six weeks just to sort of work on this thing that I was passionate about thinking like, then I'll go to, you know, Timbuktu for a month and cry alone and like process the last did you year. Did you like lease out your apartment in New York? Did you like think yes. we're gonna be gone forever and then um, you come back? I lease it out. No, I really thought I was just going to go for six weeks. Like I packed the night before. I was just was like, I'm just going to go write about Monica Lewinsky, who I'm obsessed with, and Linda Tripp, who I became obsessed with. And this is a dream job. I can't say no. And as soon as I got here, I really like that you asked, like, how, what have you been doing uh, work-wise, like spirit-wise? I, I don't know how you phrased it, but it was like, how are you personally, et cetera. Like, as soon as I got here, I felt happy. I felt happy for the first time in months and I hope that doesn't sound ungrateful because I well I hope it helps someone to hear this which is just I'm just getting into darkness very quickly but that's my brand um <laughs> that's why I get asked on so many podcasts um I um you know my dream was having two plays back to back off Broadway in one season I was like oh that doesn't get it doesn't get I've made yeah. it this is oh my god I've made it and I've never been more unhappy, I think I can safely say. Um, I think I can safely say it was a real spiritual and personal bottom. Wow. Do you think that um, it was mostly the acting thing? I mean, I know Pain and My Belligerence is no joke. I mean, you're really going for it. I can't imagine yeah. any role being harder than, I mean. Yeah, it was hard. Like, like that you wrote that for yourself and then you were like, yeah, let me go do that also. That was really, I didn't, thank God I didn't really understand what it would entail. Otherwise I wouldn't have done it and I deeply don't regret it. Hmm. But I think um, that, I, I think mostly this is what I'm coming around to and getting to the pandemic of it all. You know, um, I'll just quickly say, but, and then by way of answering that question, which is that American Crime Story kept getting extended. It turned from a six week job to a seven month job. Is that like adding new episodes? They were like, this is gonna be a longer series. They always knew it would be probably 10 episodes because that's basically the format they've established. But I think they didn't know if we would all be in a room writing it or if Sarah would mostly be writing it or if they wanted to bring in other writers to write it. But I think they felt like our group was working. So they just kept extending it. And um, I was like, you know, just still living here. And then I uh, met my partner and pretty quickly, I we could both tell this was something pretty serious. And um, 
and I was like, and I'm happy. And, um, and so I've been here the whole pandemic and relating back to your earlier question, you know, I, I believe I was struggling so much back then because I was like, this is the very surface answer. I was just heavily overworked. And this is something that's come up so much, you know, um, in the past year, you know, uh, especially um, in the we see white American theater demands, which is, thank God, you know, um, these artists have really um, shed light on how, um, uh, how do I put it, how toxic um, our work culture in, I mean, so, so much of our work culture in this country is, um, but how toxic, you know, specifically it can be in the theater with, six um, work days a week, you know, um, 10 out of 12s for tech, you know, things that are really not conducive to mental and uh, physical health. And I was just like completely burnt out in a way that um, turned me into someone I'm not. Like I said, I was a shell of a person, which is like a funny way of saying it, but it really wasn't funny. Like I remember I was <laughs> walking down walking like through Times Square after a production of, after a show of Pain of My Belligerence and just crying. And I was like, I don't even know why I'm crying. I'm just so tired. And then someone, this has happened zero times in my life. Someone tweeted, just saw at Hallie Pfeiffer like walking through Times no. Square. She must have like really like left it all on the stage tonight or something. And I was like, okay, that's why we don't cry in public. But um, <laughs> I know it was really, I, that's the only time that's ever happened but like it was a real wake-up call I was like I need some freaking help and um I've gotten it and I will say the pandemic's been um useful in that way forcing me to slow down um but really like this is the longest answer to a question ever and I'll wrap up quickly but like I um I weirdly and very gratefully was I would almost say busier during the pandemic than I've ever been. And I can't really explain it other than like writers have been very lucky, which is like, we can actually keep doing our jobs during the pandemic when so many arts workers can't. And so, um, and my theory is, I think there was some in terms of TV writing, which is mostly how I make a living these days. Like, I think there was a bit more leniency in terms of choosing writers um, because we're all terrified, maybe that's sort of my <laughs> hypothesis. So, you know, I was able to get some fun, you know, um, open writing assignment jobs for a couple different pilots. And I was incredibly busy during the pandemic and then got burnt out all over again and recently got back from a two week yoga retreat in Costa Rica. And now I feel like myself again. So I'm ready to do this podcast interview and all the <laughs> podcast interviews. <laughs> nice, nice. Let's see if we can get you booked on a couple more. Is uh, yes. who's that guy who does all of them? Mark Marin. Yeah, Marin, call me. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Aging Mark Marin. Get in. Yeah, I don't know. No, I turned him down. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. I wanted to ask you about the uh, crime story impeachment thing, but um, this is great because you went right into it. Uh, I'm oh, so good. curious that it's all playwrights in the room. Are there are there other folks? I'm assuming this is public knowledge that we can know of that that uh, our listeners might be familiar with. Um, a good question. Actually, now I'm realizing one of the writers was not a playwright. I think of her as a playwright because she's very much in the playwriting world. And um, but she um, she was was a staff writer on Russian Doll. Um, so she is 
Um, yeah, so she, that's sort of why I think of her as a playwright because Leslie Headland, obviously, who co-created and ran that room is very much of the playwriting world. Um, so her name is Flora Birnbaum, Sarah Burgess, as I mentioned, and then a playwright, Daniel Pearl, who wrote um, A Kid Like Jake, which was at LCT3 that Evan Cabinet directed several years ago. Beautiful, harrowing play that's also very morbidly funny and um, he was wonderful. And that's the whole room. It was wow. tiny. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, and then one of the executive producers, Brad Simpson was in the room too, because he, the show is really his brainchild. So he, um, he was there guiding us very strongly and uh, it was an unusual situation um, and fascinating, I learned so much. Is Ryan Murphy, is he one of the producers on it or is he created the series, right? Yes, it's actually a really interesting story, which gives me so much hope. I love telling stories like this. Um, I need to hear these stories. So Brad, who's really, really, uh, I mean, really smart, like a really, he's not like a, one of those like schmucky Hollywood producers who, you know, like has a fancy car and no brain cells. I don't know if that's an actual thing or just something you've seen. But like, <laughs> that's definitely you know, what I envisioned. So thank yeah. you for dispelling that. He's not like the guy who wakes up with a horse head in his bed, like yeah. Godfather. Like he's really an intellectual, I would say, you know, a New Yorker. He came up in working for Killer Films for Christine Bashan. Like he has a real indie bent reads voraciously and he had read this Jeffrey Tubin book about OJ Simpson um, and went around town pitching it as a series. He's like, this is a limited series. It's going to be, he's like, it's this OJ story that no one knows. It's about the people behind the scenes. It's how we judged, you know, Marsha Clark. And it's how like, you know, our unconscious misogyny colored our view of her. And um, it's about all the jurors and Judge Ito and Everyone was like, that sounds very boring. We don't want to do that. <laughs> and freaking Ryan Murphy, this is why he's a genius. He's like, I want to do that. He heard about it. And I think he took a meeting with Brad. He's like, I want to do that. And it's not a limited series. It's an anthology. And every single season is a different crime. Yeah. And it's so beautiful because I just love stories like that. You know, like the Mad Men, Matthew Weiner, like carrying that script around for seven years or 15 years. I forget what it was. It's like, yeah. if you have a good idea, probably a lot of people will tell you it can't be possible. And that probably or maybe means it's actually very good and you just have to wait for the person who has power and who gets it and who can help, you know, open the doors for you. So um, that's, so anyway, this is also, yes, Ryan Murphy's an executive producer on it. He's directing many of the episodes as well. And Monica Lewinsky is a producer on it, which is no really- kidding. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask like what she thinks or if she's involved, that's crazy. Well, this is what I also thought why I feel proud of it, um, to be a part of it, is Ryan Murphy, I think, had bought the rights to this other Jeffrey Tubin book that's about this, you know, scandal um, called A Vast Conspiracy. That again, it's not like, you know, the, you know, seamy details of the affair at all. It's very respectful. Uh, the yeah. book, it has some sexist bent, which Jeffrey Tubin himself has admitted to. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think sort of recanted some of that. He, he is judgmental of Monica in ways that now, thank God, in 2021, uh, no longer fly um, because they're completely skewed and uh, placing blame on women for powerful men taking advantage of them. So, um, but uh, Ryan had brought the rights to that book. And I think just always felt gross about producing it because he didn't want to take advantage of Monica, who's been a woman who's been more taken advantage of than 
maybe anyone in this country um, in who's alive. And he ran into her at a party and he was like, here's the deal. I have the rights to this. I don't want to tell your story without you. Would you be a producer? You will get final say. I, maybe he didn't say final say, but like you will be heavily contributing. Yeah. And she yeah. is, you know, she gives, I talked with the showrunner quickly yesterday, like she gives page notes, like she goes through everything meticulously and it's her story now, you know, we get to yeah. revisit this story that so many of us, myself included, I'm deeply ashamed to say, um, viewed through, again, like a very misogynistic lens and thank God we get to really reshape history as a result, I hope. And that's what I think, that's why I love creating TV, you know, because I think it really has the power to shift our cultural perspective while being entertaining. Yeah, I love that she's taking her agency back and doing this. I mean. I've loved her Twitter presence and like her appearances on, you know, John Oliver and stuff. And I just, we've had such a rotten skewed opinion, like you're saying. I know. And I think this is going to be, this will be the final thing to be like, no, this yeah. is the story. And that makes me so happy to hear that me she's too. been involved and in it. Feldstein, oh, sorry, I interrupted. Sorry. No, no, go um, ahead. Feldstein, who is truly a genius and I mean, just a beautiful soul. Oh, who does she play? She's playing Monica. Oh my God. I know, I know. It's brilliant casting. You know, it's her and it's Sarah Paulson as Linda Trent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did hear that. Okay, amazing. amazing. Um, anyway, I could talk about that all day. <laughs> I'm really, yeah, I'm excited and, and learned so much because I'd never written on a show that was based on true events. And now I'm writing a pilot for Apple that's based on true events. Um, and I, I don't think I could do that without my experience. Is this, is this a pilot that, that you came up with and pitched? Um, I, uh, yes and no, it's um, what's called like an open writing assignment. So a production company, and I, it hasn't been announced, so I should probably not go into too many details, but like it's based on a podcast and the podcast company, um, uh, you know, sold it to Apple. They, um, yeah, they sold it to Apple. So Apple's looking for a writer for it and you take meetings with the production company with Apple and they're like, oh, Hallie has, you know, a dark twisted sense of humor and loved exploring systemic misogyny. <laughs> you probably tell us that I've said that phrase five times in the last 20 minutes. So- Is that your brand on the website? Hallie I think so. <laughs> no, my boyfriend makes fun of me all the time. I'm like, can I ask you something? Or can I tell you something? He's like, is it about feminism? Is it about <laughs> systemic misogyny? Is it about patriarchy? <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, what am I talking about? Yes, but then I did have to pitch on it. I had to like sell myself and basically be like, this is why I'm a good person for this. Here are my ideas. This is what it would look. It's a lot of hoops you have to jump through for free, yeah. you know, to get a job. So I know, and it is, you know, you make a good living in TV, but sometimes if you really like break that down by the hours, it's like, oh, well, I've been working on this for free for three months. Like, mm -hmm. it's good that I have this hefty paycheck now because it's a lot of, um, yeah, it's just a, it's sort of a betting game. So you have to have a good temperament for that, which yeah. I, I don't know if I do. Ever since I listened to your live at the Lortel interview, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm a musical theater writer, you're a playwright. And you say in the interview that you had been told the piece of advice in maybe school or something that there are five living playwrights who make their, <laughs> their living only on plays. Yeah. And I'm like, I think there's like three in musical theater, you know, and it's probably Lin-Manuel, Stephen yeah. Sondheim, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber, end of list. And like, it makes me think about TV a lot. And uh, I'm fascinated by the writing room idea because musical theater is very collaborative in a way that playwriting, you know, 
isn't as much, I think, in the writing stage, at least. So I'm so curious about what it is to write with a bunch of playwrights, because, you know, I'm sure you all have your own, you know, bodies of work of plays, but what is that to be like, okay, let's fuse our things together. Have you done anything like that before? You mean outside of the TV world? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I know you've done other TV stuff. I really hadn't, but I will say, like, as is evident in your interview with Mark Wendland, our set designer for now almost all of my plays, I uh, am really collaborative. So is Trip Coleman, who directs most yeah. of my plays. Um, really, because it makes the work better, you know? I, I come up with a seed of an idea, but I really love hearing uh, other people's perspective because it always enriches it. And I find playwriting, you know, you, you sit in a vacuum and you make your work, but there's a reason why I'm not a novelist. You know, that sounds torturous to me. Um, I love getting in a room with a director, with actors, with designers, with stage manager, with an assistant. Like, I, I want to hear notes from everyone and they mm. all make it better. And I've started hiring playwright, playwriting assistants um, because I think it's kind of wild that directors have an assistant. There's always, you know, um, an AD, but there's never a playwriting assistant, but we're working as hard. Um, so, and, and this is all to say, I've started hiring my own and just asking them, like, be really blunt with me, give me your notes, because I have blind spots, you know, yeah. it's my baby. Um, so I think in that way, I was well-trained for uh, being in TV rooms and Trip Coleman, is a highly collaborative director too. So I, I really kind of, I learned so much from him. Um, and that said, it can be really painful, you know? Um, and thankfully I've been writing for TV now for almost seven years, which is crazy. And it's gotten less painful and you take things way less personally. Um, but there have definitely been times where I've and everyone said, like one of the writers' rooms I was in over the pandemic at the end of week one, one of it was it was an all women's writers' room, which was very cool. And one of the women was like, "Guys, this is the first room where I haven't run to the bathroom and cried during the first week." <laughs> and it was like, "Wow, I didn't know that was so common." Because I've definitely done that, you know, in rooms where I'm like, "Hey, that joke feels sexist," you know, or like, "Hey, this." kind of smacks of racism. I know it wasn't your intention, but like we can't have the only black character be a convict. That's really not okay. And hearing, you know, the showrunner be like, I think it's fine. It's wrenching. It's like, it feels like it offends one's humanity. And so that can be gutting. And then sometimes it's just creative decisions that I'm like, I know it's supposed to be this. And then I watch the show later and I'm like, I was wrong or I was right, but it's fine. Everyone seems to like the show or maybe no one's right. And I just need to make my own show so that I get to make those decisions because my job as, a, as someone on staff is not to make decisions, it's to offer options and then support the showrunner in uh, the vision that they hold. Interesting. How fulfilling do you find that versus being the playwright, being the arbiter of everything? Um, I it's really different muscles like so there's something fulfilling about all of it um but for me I you know and I'm sure a lot of us who are working in creative fields like I have 
kind of a short attention span. I have an especially short attention span. Like I'm often working on like five different things at once, which I find stimulating, not in the same day, I'm a sociopath, but like I, I like having different irons in the fire. So I know like when I got the American Crime Story gig, I was like, oh, I'm so happy I'm not the person making decisions. I'm so happy. I just get to like show up in a nice outfit every day having read the books and get to pitch ideas. And if you like them, great. And if not, no problem. And like, there's free coffee. Like I was so relieved not to be the person that people were like, um, this doesn't work. Um, are you sure? Um, like that was such an honor and I needed a break from it. And, and that's what I love about this work, you know? And speaking of musicals, I also, I don't know if I mentioned this in that interview with Eric for uh, Life at the Large Hell, but I am writing the book for a musical right now. Yes, I heard about it and I wanted to ask oh, you, you about it so bad, oh, but I wasn't sure oh, if I was allowed. Oh, yes. please, yeah, I can't say what it is, which is uh, frustrating because- Oh, I know what it is. Oh, you do? Okay, great. Do. I'm not allowed to say what it is, but you know. Um, <laughs> now all your listeners are gonna be like, wow, this is really cool. We need no, to- No, I'm, so I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. So in between when this interview was recorded and when I'm editing it now, it has actually been announced so we can share that it is the musical adaptation of Thelma and Louise that Hallie is writing the book for. Singer-songwriter Nico Case will be doing the music and lyrics. She is the singer for the band The New Pornographers. It's so freaking cool and I love it and it's so hard and it's just great because it like really yeah it just works all the different muscles but honestly I will say that's been the hardest lesson in collaboration of anything because in writers rooms for better or worse there's a very clear hierarchy like if the showrunner says no you do not challenge it's almost like the army it's like if you challenge them you're gone like you're like great you know whereas kind of yeah like they are the boss which is really good practice for a playwright in humility, you know, cause we're used to being like the be all and end all, you know, um, we're, you know, we're allowed in our contracts, we can hire and fire everyone. And then yeah. you're in a room and you're like, that's racist. And they're like, go away. You know, so it's like, you have to just, you know, that's a tricky one. Cause it is our, my moral obligation. I feel to point out um, things that are offensive. And also I cannot make anyone do anything, you know, so, Um, But I will say, you know, writing a musical has been amazing and so hard and so rewarding because we all pretty much hold equal power. Um, And- uh, Is it like a three-way, like a music, lyric, and your book? It's interesting. It's music and lyrics. um, And then, um, gosh, darn it. I wish I could be more specific. The person writing music and lyrics um, is a visionary, truly like uh, brilliant um, uh, musician who um, has a, a huge following in indie rock, but um, has no- This is just killing the folks at home. I know. You're just, you're just murdering them. I know, I know. It's Sting. No, it's not Sting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if he returned to write a musical with you- that I, Wouldn't that be funny? I would <laughs> have died and gone to heaven, Howie. Uh, it's Selena Gomez. Um, I, I wish, um, no, it's, um, uh, but, so, but she doesn't have experience with musicals. And so she's been paired with a brilliant, um, also I probably shouldn't say, but you know, it's not like we're, you know, I don't know, like at the Pentagon, but whatever, <laughs> a brilliant woman who has mu- a lot of experience writing musicals. So they're, um, writing together 
and I think I can say trip is directing because whatever uh, we, we, we are sort of a team at this point, which I love. And he's very involved from the ground up with creative decisions. So mostly it's been the four of us on zoom. This is what huge thing I've been doing during the pandemic hours and hours on zoom, writing a Broadway musical on zoom from a piece of intellectual property that is deeply beloved in our pop culture. It's feminist shock, shock, <laughs> feminist um, totem. And it's really fun. And um, like in some ways the hardest creative thing I've ever done. Cause I'm like, everyone listen to me. And I'm like, I've never been a blast one time in particular. I was like, we need to have the man on stage. And everyone was like, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And like the next day I like cried. I was like, Oh, why don't they see me? And the next day I was like, Oh my God, they were so right. I'm so embarrassed. Like, and I love that. I love being wrong because it means I'm growing. I find that such an important moment in any collaboration though, to be able to go there and be like, fight really hard for something, realize yeah. you're wrong, come back. I nothing can strengthen it faster uh, than that. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's beautiful to have strong opinions, but like when I really examined it, I was like, oh, that's just how I always pictured it, but that doesn't mean it's the strongest choice. And that's, I mean, kind of a good life lesson, honestly. And as I say it out loud, I'm like, so much of my frustration comes from like, no, I pictured it this way. Like living with my partner in the pandemic, we had to move in together during the pandemic. We, we didn't have to, we chose to do that. We had never lived with a partner before. And I was like, we're supposed to do this. And he's like, I've never done that in my life. Can we do it this way? And I'm like, I don't know. It's just like, and it's like, oh, letting go of my rigid ideas of how this is supposed to look so I can actually like see what's beautiful in front of me. And that's truly what I'm trying to do 24 hours a day, a day at a time these days. Yeah, I love that. I actually have to tell you, I went on a first date to Pain of My Belligerence. No, 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 no. I sure did. Uh, did which go? I went to through uh, through Theater Hound. You know, I got tickets through Theater Hound. Go oh. to report on. Um, brought, we dated for two years and it ended a couple months ago, pandemic, pandemic one, basically. Um, but <laughs> and it was a fascinating play to go on a first date to because it's about like, this awful relationship and like ours is beginning it was hilarious i am agape i am so sorry but honestly that must have been like a pretty solid relationship for as long as it lasted maybe because if you can survive that play as your first date i mean i mean we talked about it for like two hours afterwards so it was wow. great like fuel and fodder to be like oh let's yeah. talk about you know things and uh did toxic you know masculinity especially about? and her whole thing was like she took that play and was like holy shit that first date scene at the start of the play that was every first date I've been in in New York for the past oh God, like, two really? years and she was talking about that and I was like well I hope that I am not and she's like no 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 you're not and I'm like Th oh, thank you <laughs> honestly you're yeah. truly making my more than my day my oh my gosh thank you <laughs> if not summer I mean because that's what I wanted that first scene to be for you know, mostly women I'm imagining, though I'm sure people of all genders can relate to that dynamic in some ways, yeah. but it's, you know, that story Cat Person had come out in the New Yorker and was a big hit. Yeah, around the same time? I think it was about a year before, um, okay. but I had, I was, it was getting programmed around then and I kind of used that to kind of lobby Playwrights Horizons to program it because they, understandably had some questions because they were like this is not a cut and dry morality play this woman is 
arguably as culpable in her own destruction as the man is. And we, in such a heated climate, we are somewhat uh, apprehensive about programming a play that examines the complexities of politics of consent among many other um, gender issues because this seems to be an area where nuance is not yet invited in uh, you know, the wake of Me Too, the recent wake of Me Too, which I understood. And I, I referenced Cat Person because that's, you know, I wanted to give audiences the feeling that that story did, which is basically like, oh, I wanna throw up and this has been me and I hope it never is me and I'm complicit and I don't have to be. And yes, toxic masculinity is the problem and I can have contributed to the problem because of my own indoctrination, which I'm just waking up to. Um, so, also, I feel like that's maybe a good first date because you seem amazing compared to that guy, you know? I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think if I admitted yes to that, then I would be falling into his like, trap. Yeah, I am. But, but yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I think I, it was fascinating to see as a man too, because there are things obviously that you identify with when he's, you know, talking, 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 like, oh yeah, I can, I can totally do that too. I would like to think that it's not as domineering in that way, but I think it's so important to see like examples of that and it not be some, I mean, he, that character is larger than life, but to me, that character was, was so truthful and like dudes that I know in college, just in Brooklyn, you know, and yeah, seeing those things and then examining them within yourself is a fascinating exercise. Oh, wow. I yeah. love hearing that. I, I really appreciate it. I, I, yeah, I wanted to hear more of that. I think a lot of people were so disturbed by it that um, I could go on about this forever. They, uh, I think a lot of people were moved by it and a lot of people were so disturbed they weren't really able to open their minds to self-examination in that way. I think, but, I think I could feel that in the room a little bit. I yeah. think there's also a problem of audience. I mean, Play It's Rising's most off-Broadway theater in New York is like what do we think? Like they're probably above 50 for the most part. Uh, yeah, and those characters are like what in their thirties, early thirties, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's and it's very specific dialogue. That's like snappy, our yeah. generation, or, you know, probably in between our generation. That like, makes sense. Kind of lingo that I'm not sure it's this, it's not the same brand of toxic masculinity. Like that dude, yeah. that dude would knows what the word toxic masculinity means. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like, the yeah. 50 plus, they don't even know what that means. So they have no yeah. kind of reference. And that it. dude would denounce it for the sake of seeming woke um, yeah. and ultimately manipulating. I will say there was like one amazing story that was like kind of made it all worth it too. Uh, two that I can think of quickly, which is like one is I had a male acquaintance come and afterwards say, he's like, oh my God, now I know how you how you feel like now oh I know how that must be so gratifying Holy it was shit. so gratifying especially because like I had felt really um I had felt that he had wielded his power as a powerful white man over me many times in wow. very harmful ways so that was really uh gratifying and then a woman a uh, woman I think over 50 in a talk back became very aggressive with me um, and outed me as a recovering alcoholic, which I'm very open about, but she 
um, she outed a part of my story that's actually anonymous that like, I don't know how she knew it, but like, it's very important to me that I keep it anonymous and in front of a whole group of people in the talk back. And I didn't really let it phase me because I was like, I don't think this is about me and whatever. And I, I sort of sidestepped the question. And later Tim Sanford, the artistic director got like a long email from her that was so moving. That was like, I want to apologize to Hallie if you'll pass this on. I, I shouldn't have outed her that way. And I, I think it's because after watching that play, I really was furious with her and I didn't know why. And I hated the play and I don't know why I stayed for the talk back, but I just felt compelled to, I think, to give her a piece of my mind. And after I left, I felt even more furious and I was walking through Times Square. And before I got to the subway, I stopped and I started weeping because I remembered I had had a former boss in my twenties who I had had an extramarital affair with. And he used to bite me in the way that Hamish Linklater's character in the play always bites me as a form of seduction and also um, uh, masochism. Um, and a metaphor for giving you Lyme disease. And stated them, what? And a metaphor for giving you Lyme disease. And a metaphor, yeah. Well, you're the only one who understood it. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but and sadomasochism and um, and yeah, you are you're smarter than everyone. And um, uh, and she's like, and I realized what the play was about, and I realized I hated it so much because I haven't been willing to look at that part of myself for so many years. And thank you. So that was like incredible. And that was the kind of thing like with the work I do, I try to like, in my healthier moments, think like, okay, this isn't about my career or advancing my career or making money. It's really trying about trying to be useful to people. And like, if one person has a shift in perspective, even in some small way because of this piece, then I've done my job. So that I was like, okay, great. I did my job. Now I can- oh, I love that. I love, I love artists who think of art as like selfless, like, like, and I know it's, it's always a mix of two of like, I'm doing this because I want people to think I'm awesome and like my plays are great. I want to be, you know, successful, but I do think it's so powerful to put yourself in that mindset. And you talked about it a little bit too in the other, in the live at the Lortel interview where you say like, I feel like a channel sometimes. And mm -hmm. I love, I love thinking that way too. And I love like a play, especially like pain of my belligerence, which is so seemingly very personal and in some ways autobiographical to to like use your you know your pain or your trauma in that way and yeah. clearly it made you very unhappy so I'm sorry yeah. that you went through that but I'm also you know glad because that play made me think about a lot of things and chronic illness and pain and like you know the cycles that you get into because of that and you allow Absolutely. yourself to let toxic people in because you're like well it's a person and they like absolutely me. yeah yeah, it's interesting. We were just talking about this before this interview. I, I just had like a, my first session with a personal trainer and I was like, wow, I, I haven't done this since I was like 22. Why not? And I was like, cause I never thought of myself as someone who could do that because I've been so sick with chronic Lyme disease, which is what partly what inspired that play for most of the last decade. And before that I was a drunk and I was a workaholic and I was in no place to be able to commit to that kind of thing. And I'm like, uh, you know, after this trip to Costa Rica and like really detoxing um, to use a Gwyneth paltrow -y word, I'm like, oh, like I can get strong physically, mentally, spiritually. Like I can, I can do this. And I think, yeah, part of, 
what that play explores is like our own self-fulfilling prophecies, which is when we sort of accept that toxicity is inevitable, it will be until we break the cycle. And I'll just quickly say, I think a lot of people misunderstood the ending, which, and this is true of, you know, many of my plays like, uh, I'm gonna pray for you so hard, you know, people have called it relentlessly bleak and stuff like that, which I understand, but I don't feel it's fully relentless because there is hope at the end because this young woman who's been heavily abused and then become, a, a, become abusive gets on her knees and prays for the first time in her life at the very end. That's an act of hope and resilience, you know? And in The Pain of My Belligerence, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> for both of these, she leaves this toxic situation that she doesn't realize she's had the opportunity to leave physically and emotionally and mentally her whole life, which is not to say like patriarchy's all in our heads. Obviously that's not true. Oppression is real and we have a choice as to what we co-sign and not. 